corporations should be making things and even governments should be hiring corporations that make things that are built to last, first of all, or that can be repaired or repurposed or end of life should be a discussion that's happening very early on in the process rather than nobody thinking about it and then what do we do with all this stuff so i think there definitely is a responsibility on the part of governments and on the part of um, corporations the way they're making stuff um, that that is a really huge responsibility in terms of being able to reduce waste at, waste at its source but then uh, i think the film really takes a more personal angle to the whole problem uh, and I'm looking at a lot of people I, I actually feature quite a few artists in the film so there's a sculptor who's making this these beautiful life-sized animal sculptures out of um, tractor scrap uh, there's an architect who's making a church out of an old ocean liner uh, there's a photographer who's uh, photographing e-waste in India which is a massive problem all of its own and she's kind of making these beautiful art pho photographs to to raise awareness in India about what happens to stuff like e-waste. So uh, I ended up filming with a lot of artists, which wasn't intentional at first, but, but in the end, I think it's a really good thing because uh, artists sort of bring a different, a different creativity to the problem. So they come up with solutions that, that other people might not. Um, and I think they can also tap into emotions that, that other people might not be able to. Um, so the, the people that I was featuring really were finding use for those things that other people don't see use in. Uh, and I, I really, that really appealed to me. So. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to What The Fix podcast. Uh, I'm Paul Roberts. I'm Jack Monahan, And uh, we're back with you this week to talk about the Right to Repair news of the week and also bring you another awesome repair-related interview. Jack, who's our guest this week? Yeah, I spoke to uh, Stacey Tenenbaum. She's a documentarian from Canada who recently put out a film about scrap. That means essentially anything that is at its end of life. So she was originally interested in these like kind of old missile silos or like, you know, the USSR space program. There are these like, you know, shuttles that were in a kind of like a graveyard and she thought they were beautiful. And she just ended up diving into like all of the different, the beautiful things and just finding the beauty in them. So she interviews, you know, artists, different people that are working with things at their end of their life. So it's, it was a very interesting conversation and very different than a lot of the conversations we've been having to date. So definitely be on the lookout for that. And yeah, I've seen some stills from her documentary and they're really pretty like, you know, mind blowing. Yeah. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Just, just like gorgeous cinematography. So, um, yeah, that was a great conversation and yeah, we're looking forward to having that later in the episode. Awesome. And as always, uh, you know, if you want to get access to uh, What the Fix early and enjoy some of the premium content, uh, check out our subscription, our paid subscription at uh, fighttorepair.substack.com. Um, there's a lot of both written and podcast content that uh, you get access to. Um, so as we do every week, we're going to start our show this week uh, with a roundup of some of the interesting news of the week or two weeks, really, um, regarding right to repair and the other kind of constellation of topics around right to repair that we talk about. Um, Jack, I'm going to start with you because I know what you want to talk about and it's really interesting. Yeah, so I was mind blown when I saw this because this is like the, the stuff that I love. So there are these 
folks that ended up having the question of like, where does the stuff that you return to the store go, specifically appliances? So like if you have a toaster or a stand mixer that you end up giving back to Kmart or Target or something, they're specifically in the UK, but everybody does it. And they were like, what if we put a GPS tracker in like the refrigerator that I'm returning? Like, could we figure out where it goes? So they, they end up planting these GPS trackers in their devices that they're you know going to give back a lot of times like they go into the store to return them and they're like oh yeah we're probably just going to throw this out um and like some of the stores are just like way more forthcoming about it but other ones uh are you know don't say anything about it but they end up with like with a 50 50 split like half of the stuff that they were supposed to be like you know recycled and refurbished end up you know in a landfill and the other half um ended up being recycled so a bit of a mixed bag i thought it was really interesting just because I think it's interesting to be able to like conceptualize like where your trash goes, right? It's like whether you throw out your phone or you throw out your trash, you don't really see where it goes. And so it's like interesting to be like, oh, like this does go to a landfill or like, oh, this is being recycled. That can either be like a positive or like a negative motivator. But then it also makes me think of like, you know, like when you buy, I mean, I haven't bought cigarettes in Europe, but I know that when you buy cigarettes in Europe, they have like the diseased kidney on them. Um, and like research shows that it does nothing like absolutely no one cares like they're gonna smoke the cigarettes so part of me is like it's good like I think this is like a really interesting story and I'm really glad that they did it because I thought it was like a very interesting piece of storytelling but also part of me is like I feel like people aren't gonna care if they know that their stuff ends up in a landfill like I feel like you already know that right well on the one hand like like first of all the, the labeling, I, th I think there's low, there's probably a like point of diminishing returns for, <laughs> for labeling on things like cigarettes. And like, I think labeling, obviously over the years, we've seen smoking rates, at least in the United States and also in Europe, like collapse, basically really plummet. And I think some of that's because of labeling. But there is a point at which, first of all, you've got a self-selecting population. People are already disregarded very explicit warnings about health. And so like putting a diseased kidney on the package probably isn't going to win you many, many, uh, <laughs> many new adherents. But it, it, this issue, I think is really important. I think the same thing, I don't know about you, but like I drag, you know, every week, a you know, 80 pound blue container of, you know, recycle recyclables out to the curb to be to be taken away knowing just from what I read that probably 70% of what's in there does not get recycled, you know, the single use plastic clamshells and, you know, um, the, you know, thick plastic, uh, whatever, you know, uh, dishwashing liquid containers or whatever. Um, and that, you know, really, yeah, the newspaper gets recycled, the cardboard gets recycled, you know, some of the aluminum gets recycled, the glass gets recycled, everything else, which is most of what's in there, doesn't um and the same thing with electronics too you know that we get talked to by companies about their responsible recycling policies but what how much of that is just recycling theater you know um and how much of it is real and i think there is like we talked i think in our last episode about you know the the eu passing new laws around kind of greenwashing and you know what you can and can't claim um about you know, whether your product is green or whatever. And I think you, it's like we need laws like this, like for recycling. Like, listen, if you're going to say, if you're going to tell people, you're going to market that you recycle stuff or tell your customers you recycle stuff, like, here's what that means. You have to be doing these things. Because the collective yeah. understanding is so different, right? Most people, yeah. if you don't know anything about recycling, you're like, oh, okay, cool. Like, this all just gets turned into new stuff. But in reality, it's like, 
No, it's just kind of like a longer trip to a landfill, like because then it'll get right. into something else, which will probably end up right. in a landfill. Yeah, they might grab one or two components off that thing, but ninety percent of it, ninety-five percent of it, is going into the landfill, right? And and you know, and most people probably wouldn't think that. So yeah, um, yeah, that's a good one. That is a good one, and I love the use of the GPS trackers to kind of hilarious. We'll, yeah, we'll plug the podcast. They have like a, a twenty-minute podcast on it. That's great. I want to do um, the EU, uh, I want to talk about the um, position uh, articulated by the European Parliament, uh, I think it was the week before last or last week, um, that they are now going to be requiring all uh, smartphones and tablets to use a uniform uh, charging cord. Uh, and in fact, they standardize, I think, on the USB-C charging cord, which is probably if you've got a late model I'm, uh, MacBook or something, it's, it's what you're plugging into the side of your MacBook, um, which is long overdue. Um, it's going to um, really uh, impinge on Apple, who has been, you know, uh, adamant that it used its own proprietary connectors for its phones and tablets, these lightning connectors. Um, and I just think it's a great story. I think it's it, you know, when when I read the story and they talked about the fact that just just that one law they estimate is going to save EU consumers like two hundred and fifty million dollars <laughs> a year in not buying extraneous charging cords just to satisfy some, you know, OEM's uh, preference. Um, that just blew my mind how much money goes into it. And then, of course, there's a huge, like, e-waste component that's going to eliminate, I don't know, how many thousands of tons of e-waste in, in, you know, extra charging cords. Because um, you can now have one cord that charges, like, all your devices. You don't need a different cord for each device. Um, and I just thought that was great. And, and I was sort of blown away by actually what the environmental impact of it is and what the financial impact of it is. And you realize, and when you look more deeply at it, you realize like, you know, for companies like Apple, which got rid of the standard, you know, um, you know, three and a half millimeter audio jack, right. And, and made you either use, you know, their AirPod Bluetooth, uh, headphones or one that has a lightning connector, you realize that Apple makes money licensing those lightning connectors, right? Like that is a revenue grab for them, right? The standard stereo jack, they couldn't monetize. The lightning connector, they can, they get, I don't know what it is, $4 for every one of those connectors they license. Um, and just the cost that that imposes on consumers, you know, it's, it's, a, huge, it's a huge amount of money spread across a big society like, you know, the EU or the US. So when you compare, they also like they're trying to be very insular. It's the same reason why, like when you text someone from an Android phone, from an iPhone, it shows up green, right? Like they do these very subtle things because yes. they want to keep iPhone users like keeping their yes. iPhones and staying in the Apple ecosystem. In the walled garden. Yes. yes. And, mm -hmm. you know, when you when you're Apple and you weigh those kind of two priorities, it's like, well, we could probably have less e-waste and we could probably be better and like not have this extraneous cord that nobody else will be able to use. We're not going to do that because that yeah. make us money. Or we can make friggin' gobs of money licensing this out <laughs> to our huge user base. I mean, you know, there are, you know, hundreds of millions of Apple customers. So 
you know, when you're that size, when you've got that popular a product, you can just, you can just, just, you know, think up creative ways to mint money based on that huge user base. But what are the social costs of that? You know, what are the downstream costs to consumers of that, of that fragmentation? What, what also struck me about this is the EU has actually been working on this since 2009, which is actually, that's barely, the iPhone was barely out really in 2009. But they saw early on, like, hey, this fragmentation and charging cords is a problem. We should get on that. And it just sort of struck me, like, how far ahead the conversation is across the pond than it is in the United States. Because I'm not even aware of, I mean, I am guess there's probably somebody talking about it somewhere in Washington, D.C. or one of the state houses. But it is certainly not um, something that you hear much conversation about, uh, these kind of circular economy concepts of, you know, reducing fragmentation, waste, increasing, you know, kind of reusability. Um, just isn't much of a conversation here about that. Story. I mean, it's, it would be such a huge lift, like in terms of, yeah. of getting, getting support for it through politicians, mm -hmm. whether it be a state house or nationally, it's just like the yeah. amount of political capital you would have to burn. Like think about the amount of political capital that had to get burned in just like the wheelchair bill that passed. And that's like such mm -hmm. a clearly like easy issue to be like, hey, like this is a disability like issue. Mm -hmm. This is like very clearly, there's a right and a wrong side to this. But like mm -hmm. that was even difficult when it was like clear as day, what was right and what was wrong. And so when you get into something that is like a little more gray and companies are like, oh no, we're gonna lose money. Or like, you know, it's gonna hurt the economy. It's gonna hurt innovation then it just gets way messier. So I, yeah, I don't, I don't think we'll see that in the U.S. Any, like maybe we'll get it in 15 years, but yeah, I don't expect it anytime soon. The question is, do we benefit from what the EU does? So you know, Apple, you know, they're not going to make one iPhone for EU and one iPhone for the U.S., right? So does does that EU mandate now become, in essence, a de facto global? Can mandate Apple drag their Apple? feet on this? Well, no, I mean, Apple was against it, of course, but you know. Obviously, it, it wasn't enough to um, to halt progress on the uh, on the bill or on the the um, proposal, um, which I think is is going to be enacted. So yeah, no, I mean they were against it, of course, but so uh, well, that'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. It will. Speaking yeah. of, uh, you know, okay. giant yeah. companies and their exertion of like you know outsized market power. Uh, antitrust summer is coming. I don't know if it's officially summer by the time we're taping this, but uh, you know, shout out Megan the Stallion, the uh, the FTC and Congress are pushing you know some antitrust agendas. Specifically, the FTC now has there are commissioners that kind of oversee the FTC, and they're partisan. And up until now, there was a two-two split, Democratic Republican and. Very recently, there was a Democrat that was just switched out for the Republicans. So now there's a majority of commissioners in the FTC allowing Commissioner Lena Khan to kind of get things really moving. And mm -hmm. a lot of the agenda is going to be around, you know, like merger guidelines, consumer protection. So a lot of issues that are running, you know, in tandem with right to repair. So it's going to be very interesting to see kind of what what is on the table from what i've read they're pushing more not specifically like picking out actors like they're not going to be like oh like we have to pick amazon but they're looking for like you know large trends what groups are kind of like upstream who are going to be like very difficult to handle in the future let's say if there's like you know administrations that aren't going to be able to handle this in the future or don't want to um cough cough 
uh, <laughs> uh, but so they have that for the FTC and there are two bills that are running through the house right now. One is the uh, open markets, app, open app markets app, and the other is the American yep. innovation um, focused app. So the, the first one is about like digital applications, making sure that, you know, there is competition in that space because we've already seen like lawsuits, like Apple took down um, stuff with like Epic games, the people that make Fortnite, um, they pulled them down and there's been a lot of litigation between that. Mm -hmm. And then also there, the second bill is just about like yes. dominant platforms. So like Amazon or Facebook, then using their, you know, ads to then sell their own products. And that kind of it, this monopoly power that they have is creating is just like, right is self-serving them in so many ways. Yes. Whereas like when they sell yeah. their ad space to, you know, another company, it's not actually a competitive environment or like, it's not actually a fair environment when they, you know, can compete or they're rather, they're not competing. Right. Like they have seriously unfair advantages given the size and the dots. Yeah. Their... Yeah, it's just like this is one of those things where, you know, seemingly because it was all happening, you know, online or on the Internet that people sort of suspended disbelief about all these rules and laws we had about, you know, illegal constraints on, you know, uh, commercial activity. And, you know, the Apple App Store is a great example where they basically were able to, you know, because they controlled the platform you know, extract fees from app sellers and also stipulate to them how they could, that they had to use their payment platform. It was a total 100% tying arrangement that when you look at antitrust law is pretty clearly illegal to do stuff like that. But somehow, because it was all in the context of the app store and these online ecosystems, everyone just sort of had magical thinking like, well, maybe this isn't a monopoly because it's software and it's on the internet, you know? <laughs> and then you add app developers and companies come along and being like, yeah, we're basically being extorted here by this, by Apple who controls this, you know, who controls this platform. Um, and yeah, it has given birth to a lot of uh, litigation um, and, and feuds between yeah, game makers and Apple uh, and, and this legislation. Um, I mean, I think this is, you know, obviously there's a moment right now in D.C. Um, about the power and and um, undue influence of large tech companies, um, you know, Apple, Google, Microsoft, uh, Facebook, you name it. And it, it seems to be bipartisan uh, in nature. Um, and this is exactly the type of thing that they're focusing on. You know, Google's control over, you know, the online advertising and Facebook's control over online advertising, you know, big concern, you know, Apple's uh, and or, or Google's, you know, control over these exclusive marketplaces to get access to their devices. Right. And, um, you know, yeah, we'll um, see. Because it seems like they're still. It seems like the conservative viewpoint is still like the. Uh, you're like they're talking about these platforms stifling conservative voices and. Yes, yes. Different motivations, although, you know, um, sometimes you got to be like, you know, if that's if that's what's bringing you to the table, oh, yeah, I'm you're cool at the table. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, you know, I'm. Yeah, I'm cool with it too. Like that's I'm you know if, if you're concerned about, you know. Conservative voices being 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 shut out, which I'm I'm not sure is actually happening. But if that's what is bringing you to realize that these plat you know these platforms and these companies have undue control and influence over the marketplace, and that it hurts consumers, um, or hurts free speech, 
okay, you know, let's let's move forward Indeed. and figure out what Trust. we can do to, to, to rectify that. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how politics works, you know. Okay, so my story, and then we're going to move on, but my story is about a um, op-ed that ran in The Hill by a, um, a uh, guy named Reggie Lockhart, who's a New York-based actor, writer, producer, and he did When the Well Runs Dry and Celebrity Ghost Stories and so on. He's sort of an actor type. Wrote a op-ed in The Hill um, called Proposed Repair Bill Goes Too Far. And basically in it, Reggie kind of, um, uh, you know, pays respect to the notion that we need um, a right to repair and that, you know, restrictions on, you know, farmers fixing their tractors or, or cell phone owners being able to fix their, you know, personal electronics. You know, yeah, we need that. But this repair bill um, that uh, was has been introduced um, by uh, Mondaire Jones and um, the House of Representatives, the Freedom to, to Repair Act, uh, Mondaire Jones is one of the sponsors, um, goes too far. And, and he says it goes too far because it rolls back um, protections in the Digital Millennium Copyright Act around what the DMCA calls, um, you know, distributing tools for piracy, um, which sounds bad um, until you realize that basically like what that basically what like to use a really great example you know, the the Librarian of Congress has given permission for people to um, circumvent digital locks to, for example, repair optical drives on like gaming consoles like Xbox and, and PlayStation, right? Huge, you know, it's a, it's a carve out um, that will really help consumers. But what you realize is that, you know, that's a highly complicated thing to do. Um, and that if you were to develop software or tools to help you do it, um, you cannot distribute those. You can use them individually, but you can't post them online and say, hey, if you want to replace your optical drive, check this out. It's a program I developed, an application I can develop that'll help you, you know, deregister it, re-register it, whatever. Um, or, hey, here's an implement I developed to help you, you know, extract or insert the, you know, replacement optical drive. You cannot circulate that because those are, quote unquote, piracy tools. Um, most of them would just call them tools. Um, and he basically makes this whole argument that that is just a bridge too far and that that's going to make it impossible for filmmakers, uh, you know, to make, or game designers to make a profit doing what they're doing. Kind of hard to believe. Um, and... You know, I just wanted to sort of call it out and be like, uh, and he, he uses this line like, oh, you can't buy burglary tools at Home Depot. And it's sort of like, actually, I don't think that that's true. <laughs> I think you probably can find a tool to like, you know, pick locks at Home Depot because we recognize that like the tool isn't the problem, right? The tool is a tool. Um, and, you know, none of us support game piracy or movie piracy. We all recognize that that's wrong and we all support laws to, to stop people from doing things like that. But the DMCA goes much further. And I think this, this Freedom Repair Act um, has some really common sense um, um, revisions, modifications of the DMCA to make it less onerous um, and to facilitate things like you know, people replacing the optical drives on their Xbox or going to a repair shop and having them replace the optical drive. Um, you got to give it to the DCPR shops, you know. They're coming up with interesting angles for the pro DMCA camp, and uh, it's creative. <laughs> yeah, you don't hear many, you know, yeah, pro, pro DMCA yeah. 
uh, positions out there. But this was one, you know, they, they're, they're not, uh, you know, just like you hear anti-repair op-eds every once in a while, almost always backed by industry money, but, um, you know, whatever. <laughs> okay, on, onward. Yes, uh, yeah, so I'll tee this up. Uh, Stacy Tannenbaum is, uh, like we said, a director for Scrap. We'll have all the information on uh, you know, being able to see the film, there are going to be some theatrical releases this fall. And Stacy told me that they're actually doing some events. Uh, they're called, uh, I think they're called Fix It Mixers, where they're doing uh, showings in tandem with um, Fix It Clinics. Oh, I and love And they're doing that. A, a lot of stuff like, you know, repairing old phones and giving them to, um, you know, organizations that um, give them to folks that are experiencing homelessness or people that have... Um, you know, sight impairment, stuff like that. So well, all that information will be there. Um, Stacy's fantastic person to talk to. And so really excited to show you the interview. Awesome. Let's go. Let's go to it now. All right. Stacy Adambaum, thank you for being our guest on What the Fix today. For our listeners that don't know who you are, can you uh, give us a taste of, you know, what you do and what your work is? Yeah, I'm a um, filmmaker based out of Montreal, Canada. Um, this is my third film, Scrap is my third film. My first two films were all kind of also on different types of subjects. I did a film about shoe shiners called The Art of the Shine, which is actually on Amazon Prime uh, and was on PBS as well. And I did another film about a pipe organ competition. So I have these weird array of <laughs> interests and tastes. Uh, and uh, Scrap is my first film that's kind of an environmental film, but it touches on some of the same themes I looked at, even in my shoe shiner movie, which was like about buying stuff that's quality. Shoe shining is all about, um, you know, buying good shoes and maintaining them so that they last you a lifetime. So I've kind of always had that interest in, in sort of repairing and keeping stuff and the emotional value that stuff can have in our lives and why that's important to to have that. Um, so that's what Scrap really is about. It's about um, the things we throw away, the things that we think have reached their end of life uh, that just end up in these graveyards around the world uh, that might be able to have a second purpose. So um, that's kind of the through line for this film. I wanted to ask you kind of what your motivation was for the film getting started kind of from inception to, you know, now you're going to be, um, you know, having a theatrical release very soon. So can you just walk us through kind of the journey of what the motivation was and how that changed over time? Yeah, it was a huge journey, actually. Uh, the It started about, I'd say, 10 or 12 years ago, even. I saw a picture of... Um, one of these uh, graveyards for space junk that, that was in Moscow. It happened to be in Moscow. And I, I saw and it just had all this historical spacecrafts and rockets and things in it. And I just was like very captivated by the look of that place, but also just sort of the amount of history that is thrown away uh, or just, you know, rotting away in because metal doesn't really rot. But um, so that really captured my imagination. I always sort of thought these places were really beautiful and just got me thinking about well, what happens to things, you know? Because um, no one thinks, well, where do things end up? Like big things. Um, so we all kind of know about recycling and we throw out our cans and maybe maybe they get recycled. We don't even know in a lot of cities if they do. Um, but no one's really thinking about what happens to these big objects at their end of life. So I thought that was a really interesting question to explore in a, in a film. 
So that was kind of the beginning of the film. And one of the first thing I shot was um, these phone boxes in, in England. So these iconic, beautiful red phone boxes. They're like the, the basically the symbol of England <laughs> are these phone boxes. And they were actually just going to throw them all away. Like they were going to scrap them. Uh, and there was this one guy that had the foresight, thank God, to save a bunch of these phone booths that he's restoring. So it just got me really thinking about that because, you know, I mean, every city now, I mean, I, I just saw recently the last phone booth is being removed in New York City, right? And it's like, well, where do they go? What happens? Uh, so that that's kind of the, uh, the, the question that I'm asking in the film. Is where does it all go? Yeah. Yeah. And, and why? What, like, what what could be another way to i think that that's sort of what the film does get into in the end and in your director's note i saw that you something you mentioned was kind of the the switch we've made between accountability moving toward like you know corporations and institutions kind of now being in charge of our waste how did the film make you think about that and kind of the role that individuals play versus you know collective action institutions that kind of stuff yeah, so I think that it's just also changing the way we think about things, the way things are made, the way thing we buy things. <laughs> so I think everybody has a little bit of that responsibility, you know, uh, corporations should be making things and even governments should be hiring corporations that make things that are built to last, first of all, or that can be repaired or repurposed or end of life should be a discussion that's happening very early on in the process rather than nobody thinking about it and then what do we do with all this stuff so i think there definitely is a responsibility on the part of governments and on the part of um, corporations the way they're making stuff um, that that is a really huge responsibility in terms of being able to reduce waste at waste at its source but then uh, i think the film really takes a more personal angle to the whole problem uh, and I'm looking at a lot of people I, I actually feature quite a few artists in the film so there's a sculptor who's making this these beautiful life-sized animal sculptures out of um, tractor scrap uh, there's an architect who's making a church out of an old ocean liner uh, there's a photographer who's uh, photographing e-waste in India which is a massive problem all of its own and she's kind of making these beautiful art pho photographs to to raise awareness in India about what happens to stuff like e-waste. So uh, I ended up filming with a lot of artists, which wasn't intentional at first, but, but in the end, I think it's a really good thing because uh, artists sort of bring a different, a different creativity to the problem. So they come up with solutions that, that other people might not. Um, and I think they can also tap into emotions that, that other people might not be able to. Um, so the, the people that I was featuring really were finding use for those things that other people don't see use in. Uh, and I, I really, that really appealed to me. So uh, the film became a lot more about our attachment to things and the fact that we can be attached to things and also that things have a really huge importance just in the history that they carry with them, in the memories, like the collective social memory uh, that, they, that they sort of have, that, that if we're throwing those things away, we're, we're losing more than we think we're losing. Um, so the idea behind the film is really to show that we can be attached to objects and that we should be, like that, that that's important and that we need to buy stuff uh, mindfully 
so that we uh, are buying stuff that we know we can keep and we can repair and uh, not to even get into the whole idea about you know built-in obsolescence and <laughs> companies not allowing you to fix stuff like we should be not buying from companies who are doing that I know that's hard um, but even stuff like your cell phone like if you keep it a little longer it, it just makes a huge difference I know people don't think that <laughs> but, but it does like when you go to an e-waste plant and you see how many cell phones are there like if we would all just keep ours a little bit longer even though it's not the newest and best and whatever <laughs> it makes a difference so the, I feel like there are little things that people can do as well and it's not just corporations and, and companies and governments I think there are just daily activities that we can do yeah and I, it's interesting that you talk about how it seems like it's more about the stories that we tell ourselves and how we conceptualize ownership and um you know i feel like a lot of times we throw something in the trash or we get the new phone and we don't actually think about you know the end product of it ending up you know in a landfill or you know piling up e-waste can you talk a little bit about why you think it was useful to talk to you know artists that are reconceptualizing our things rather than you know talking to someone that's an expert on you know recycling or something like that yeah i think it was really important for me to show upcycling in the film like i really love upcycling i i was doing it before i even knew there was a term for it <laughs> it's like oh well, half the stuff in my house is kind of upcycled um so i really knew that i wanted to show that in the film also to just give people hope like to i think a lot of environmental issues you're just like they're so big and there's so much stuff and like what are we it's just like a, you, you get these feelings of hopelessness and so I really wanted to focus on people who were sort of doing stuff that was that's making a difference in their own little way and and would leave few people feeling a little bit hopeful um, and that you know we can use our creativity and ingenuity to be able to to come up with different creative solutions to the, to the problem. As a Gen Zer, I can definitely say the climate doom is real. So it's good to uh, it's good to have this kind of art that is able to kind of shift the narrative. Um, so another thing that you're doing with along I don't know if it's alongside the theatrical release, but you are doing um, you know a bunch of repair cafes in tandem with the release of the film. Can you talk about what the purpose behind that is and kind of why you decided to release it in that way? Yeah, so we, um, I am going to be in film festivals. I had my festival premiere, but I also, for World um, in Environment Day, I wanted to do something really important um, relating to repair, because right to repair is something that's really important to me. And it's kind of, I know the film doesn't really automatically touch on it, but it's something that I wanted people to be aware of. So, you know, when they see the film, if they get some kind of emotion or inspiration, that then they can take it one step further and do something about it. And one of the things that I think we can do is repair, um, which is a sort of lost art. Like, like, and you think about it in one generation, like people lost all those skills, right? Like, and that's shocking to me, right? So I, I really love the idea of repair cafes and that people can go or tool libraries. We've also partnered with a lot of tool libraries to encourage people to get the tools so they can do their own repairs. So I thought it was a really, really nice fit with the film. So what we're doing is we're doing an online, uh, well, no, actually an in-person, which is really fun because it's kind of creating community, which is something that's important to me too. So the, a lot of these uh, repair cafes and tool libraries were in going to be in 16 cities all on the same day. Uh, and they're going to do a screening of the film and they're going to do a repair event. Um, so that's really, I think, what the film's about is, you know, 
I mean, it's not about that, but for me, it's about that in that I really want to create that community and get people thinking about repairing and, and taking whatever little actions they can. So I'm doing that on uh, June 5th and uh, on my website, you can sort of get a list. I will be putting it up soon. It's not there yet, um, but I will put up a list of all of the cities that are participating in that. So if it's near you, I would love uh, for you to be able to, you know, people there to be able to participate. And uh, I'm also collecting cell phones at all of my screen. So I'm going to be doing a theatrical release of the film in Canada and the U.S. probably in October and uh, I'm partnering with two organizations. So in Canada, I'm partnering with the Canadian National Association for the Bl Institute for the Blind, which uh, has a phone it forward program where you donate your phones and your tablets and they wipe them and they load them with apps to help uh, people with sight impairment navigate the world. So instead of your phone ending up in India, it could end up in the hands of someone who, will, who it will help. Uh, and then in the US, they have a similar type of initiative uh, called Secure the Call, which is they, they collect the phones and they give them to people like homeless people or the elderly or people in abusive situations so they can have a secret phone to call 911. So great, two amazing, amazing programs. And I think it's a really good showing, you know, recycling is sort of a way of the past and repurposing and fixing and <laughs> reusing is what I want to promote with the film. So that's why I'm doing those two phone initiatives. So the film has these environmental partners. What does that entail? And is that traditional for like an environmental film or just films in general? Yeah, um, so the film, uh, when I started making it, I knew that it wasn't going to be a heavily fact <laughs> driven. I knew it was going to be more of an emotional, experiential film, but I had these environmental issues that were quite important to me that I knew that if the film could create some kind of emotion in people, I would like to have the like them to have a place to go to maybe get more involved or to become more active. So from the very beginning of the film, I did start talking to people who shared my values. So people that were working in the right to repair or movement. I spoke to iFixit and uh, US Perk. Uh, they're doing great work um, and people involved in the circular economy and upcyclers. And I also really love urban explorers. So I was in touch with a lot of them because I think that they are documenting history in a way. I I mean, people don't think that an urban explorer is environmental, but they are sort of saving that stuff. Like they're they're documenting the history of things, and I think that's important. So I have a lot of environmental partners that I've been working with since even before the film was made, um, because I knew that I wanted that second step for people to be inspired and then get get activated. So repair their phones or, or, you know, even get involved in like right to repair legislation, which is hugely important. Um, so or repair cafes or so I really knew that I wanted to create a community around the film. And so I um, started partnering with different organizations. And really, it's not a lot. I mean, it's just we agree to amplify each other's messages. And I have links to all my partners on my website. And uh, they follow me on social media. And we sort of, you know, share each other's content so that more people can get the messages that are behind the film out so that we all share the same goals so uh, 
So that's why I have a lot of environmental partners for the film. Um, but anyway, so they're all on my website. And if anyone would want to be an environmental partner, they could reach out to me through there. And I'm always looking to like expand that community because I think the more people who are thinking the same way, going in the same direction, the better it is. So uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm on a social media as well at Scrap Documentary or Scrap Doc. That's, um, so I'm pretty easy to find. And I post lots of pictures about the film too. So. Switching gears just a little bit, another thing you mentioned, and I think we're kind of circling around, is, um, you know, consumption and disposable culture. We've covered it a little bit when we're talking about phones, but how do you think about overconsumption in, you know, present day and where repair and restoration and art kind of fits in that? Yeah, it's always been something like even like I was saying about my shoe shining film, it was very much about that topic. It's just the the buying quality stuff that's built to last is is just hugely important to me. Uh, and then, you know, that that all helps with overconsumption. So you're, you're just keeping your things longer because right now I think there's a lot of built in obsolescence in pretty much everything and more and more things are getting that like just as things become more computerized even cars cars used to be something that a mechanic could fix and now even cars like the companies like they've computerized it to the point where regular mechanics might not be able to fix it some of them have proprietary stuff on that that they won't let you fix so um if you think about it, it's just like less and less things are being repairable, like made to be repairable. And also uh, the life cycles are getting shorter and shorter uh, on them. Uh, and and we're losing that instinct to even repair if we could. So uh, I think they're all very, very closely linked to each other. Uh, and I think the film, what it's showing is more uh, it's making more emotional. It's like we can be attached to these things and we can care about them and the things hold our memories and they hold our history and our culture. So so when you're when you're throwing stuff away, when you lose that instinct, then you're throwing away a lot more than you're like just the thing. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm trying to show in the film. And do you think like also the reverse is true that like by having a more disposable culture that like we care about our things less and they're less meaningful to us? Yes, <laughs> definitely. I mean, I think that's it. You know, you just can't have like a lot of the people in the film are like deeply attached to the things that they're they're attached to. Like there's a guy who's been collecting streetcars for you know, his entire life. <laughs> he's a bit of a weird guy, uh, but he's really attached to them. And, and so I wanted to show that, that you can have an attachment to things uh, and that that's important. And when we're, we're throwing stuff away, we're, we're losing something that's very important. Yeah, I think we, we often don't kind of fully appreciate how meaningful like the stuff in our lives is. Or could be. <laughs> yeah, or could be. It's. I mean, I think the problem is that cell phones and things like that are made to be disposed. Like, it. It, it sort of starts even at the at the creation of the thing. <laughs> like, they're making it to be disposed, and so then you're just disposing it, and they're creating that false need of like, I need the newest or the freshest or whatever. Uh, so yeah, that's that's really highly problematic. <laughs> yeah. And also, I guess if your stuff is more meaningful to you, you're probably a little less uh, subject to that kind of planned obsolescence because, you know, you're, you don't want to give up your thing mm -hmm. because, you know, you care about it and you don't really yeah. care about getting the new iPhone. You care about, you know, your, I don't know, 50-year-old Nokia or something. <laughs> 
I still have a landline. <laughs> there you go. That's that's proof. That's authenticity for the uh, for the film. <laughs> um, so I guess our last question I wanted to ask you was, you know, how has this film's been in the making for a while? I want to know how your perspective on kind of this all the issues surrounding the film have kind of changed. You've talked to a lot of different people, um, and I'm curious to see like with with each person you know, how this has kind of shaped your view of the world. Yeah, well, I went into it kind of um, with this sort of aesthetic idea that these things were beautiful in and of themselves. And originally I thought I was just gonna film the graveyards and they would be the big part of the story. Um, Cause they're, be I mean, I think they're beautiful and hopefully after seeing the film, other people might, um, but I, I was really drawn to them for that reason. Uh, so at first it was really just about the aesthetics of these places and just, you know, showing where does stuff end up. But it became much more about our attachment to things and the stuff we've been talking about now. It became more personal uh, about how these people, these different people had different relationships to things from the past and how they were dealing with, you know, um, finding usefulness or a second use in these things. Um, so that that's kind of how the film trans, transformed. And then during COVID, I mean, we were all going through a lot of loss generally. Uh, so it became a little bit more about the sadness we feel when we lose things, but also people. <laughs> so, and just how people can be embodied in the things they use. Like when you inherit someone from something from some something from someone you love, it has a lot of meaning to you. So uh, it became a little bit more about loss and uh, and that feeling that we can have uh, losing things, and and also a hopefulness that we can have if we can keep those things and hold on to them longer. Yeah. We definitely, I think the conversations that Paul and I have with folks, it can definitely turn into a kind of like a technical conversation about, you know, like this is a problem that needs to be fixed. And it seems like you're taking more of like, maybe spiritual is not the right word, but like definitely something more to do with like personhood and, you know, how it fits into our culture. Yeah. Stacey Tanamam, director and producer of The Scrap Documentary. Thank you so much for coming on What The Fix. Thank you so much. <laughs>